Father, we come this morning with joyful hearts because it is good to come to the house of the Lord and be with Your people and sing Your praises this morning. We are grateful for Your provisions in our lives this week. We are thankful for Your protection in our lives this week. We come as men and women humble before the cross of Jesus Christ, claiming nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, we are a needy people today. We think of those in our own church family who have suffered tremendous loss this week. I lift up Adonna Pierce and her family this morning after the sudden loss of her mother. We pray your blessings upon the Pierce family and Mr. Cole. We pray, Father, that after they have suffered a little while, you will raise them up again, restore them to hope and good strength. Father, for those who are suffering from serious illness, and there are many in our church, We lift those people up to you. You are the healer. You are our God, our provider, and our physical healer. We commit them to you. We ask your blessings upon them. Father, in this hour, we have set aside that we call the Sabbath. It is a special day for us. It's set aside. It marks us as, it sets us aside and marks us as a unique people. We are yours, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And Father, during this hour, we pray that In all that's said and done, you will be pleased by the preaching of the word, the offerings that we give, the songs that we sing. May it bring glory to your name. And when we leave here, we will say, it is good to worship God. And so, Father, finally this morning, we pray as our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, I'm excited about getting to preach this morning. This is my first time to get to preach in the new sanctuary. I've been trying to get Jimmy to leave town for two months. And Finally, he left town on Wednesday. He's, uh, Jimmy's preaching in Florida this morning, and will get back with us, I think, tomorrow. So I'm, uh, gl- I'm glad that trip worked out for him. Uh, while we're talking about Florida, it's, uh, let me say welcome to uh, those of you who are back after spring break, break this past week. And some of you went down to Florida, I think. I talked to one family who spent the week in Destin. They said it was a little bit chilly down there this week, so welcome back. You really didn't miss any good weather up here either. And if you're praying for rain, uh, please stop. I've had enough. (laughs) Our text this morning is taken from the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we'll read the first 11 verses. Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider each other better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others." Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, 
who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, Philippians is one of the four prison epistles, along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Philippians was written around the year A.D. 60, give or take a few years, and we know that from uh, chapter 1 where Paul says that because of his chains, the, the gospel had been advanced. The brothers in the church were bolder in, uh, in proclaiming the gospel. And even the prison or the palace guards uh, heard the gospel because of Paul's imprisonment. It was ten years prior to the writing of this letter that Paul had first entered the fertile ground of the city of Philippi. Now, if you want a detailed explanation or uh, narrative of what's going on here, you can turn to Acts 16. Uh, Luke gives a a play-by-play sequence of what's happening during this particular time in Paul's uh, missionary journeys. If you know the story, just a couple of things about it. Paul had traveled with uh, Silas and Luke was in the, uh, in the company and they had traveled up to the area of Mycenae and Bithynia. But the Spirit of the Lord wouldn't let them go into that region and minister. And so one night, Paul and his company co- comes to the city of Troas. And there during the night, Paul, in a, in a dream, uh, sees a man from Macedonia. This man comes to Paul and he literally, the text says, begs Paul to come over to Macedonia and help them there. So the next morning, Paul gets up and they travel over to the the, the port city of uh, Neapolis in Macedonia. And then they go up about 12 miles inland to the Roman province of Philippi. They begin to, to declare the gospel. On the Sabbath day, the text says they go out of the city gates down by the river to preach the gospel. And there that morning, this woman who is a dealer in a purple linen, a very wealthy lady by the name of Lydia. You remember Lydia? It's there on that morning that she confesses Christ as Lord. And the church at Philippi is planted and it begins to prosper. Now, chapter one also contains a very familiar verse that some of you probably have committed to memory. It's that text that deals uh, so succinctly with the doctrine of sanctification, where Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 1, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of completion, the day of Christ Jesus. Now, if you study the commentators, almost all of the commentators will agree that the book of Philippians, at least one major theme in the book of Philippians, is the theme of joy. Paul is very optimistic in this letter, very joyous and very encouraged about the progress of of the church at Philippi. Others say that of all the Pauline letters, this is the most personal. Uh, some Some say this is Paul's love letter to the church. And he writes saying things like this. I thank God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy concerning your partnership in the faith. I have you in my heart. 
I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for. And so, guys, when you consider Paul's current circumstances in prison in Rome, it's really amazing that Paul can be so optimistic, so encouraged, and so joyous in this letter. Why would Paul be uh, in such an attitude uh, considering his circumstances? Well, that takes us to the second theme of the book of Philippians, Christ. To all of Paul, or to to Paul, all of life is summed up in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I live my life to gain him. I want to know Christ. I want to be found in Christ. And to the Apostle Paul, it's only at the cross will a man truly discover Christ. In his own words, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I'm reminded of the words of the late James Montgomery Boyce, who said, You must go to the Bible to understand salvation, but you must go to the cross to understand the Bible. So this morning, as we look at these 11 verses in Philippians, I want us to look at two major points. One, the first point is the mark of the cross in the church. And then we'll close with the mark of the cross in the world. First, the mark of the cross in the church. As I was reading through this epistle several times in the last few weeks, I was frequently reminded of our own church, Grace of Anne. We have some things in common with the church at Philippi. Uh, we know that the, uh, the church at Philippi was about 10 or 11 years old, relatively speaking. They were a young church like Grace of Anne. But more importantly than that, the church at Philippi was doctrinally sound. If we could audit their sessional meetings, we wouldn't find, I don't think, any heated discussions over doctrinal issues. So the question remains, what prompted the writing of this epistle? Ladies and gentlemen, in the epistle we discover that a spirit of disunity had taken root in the church. We see the first evidence of this in chapter 1, verse 27. Look over there quickly. Chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He goes on to say, stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Then chapter 2, verse 14, we've already read that verse. It says, do everything, Paul says, without complaining or arguing. But then the real evidence comes in chapter 4, verse 2. Here, Paul addresses two particular ladies, two prominent ladies in the church, and uh, it's apparent that they've had some kind of disagreement. And Paul addresses them by name in chapter 4, verse 2, and he says, I plead with you, ladies. I plead with you. Agree with each other in the Lord. Then in verse 5, he goes on to say, let your gentleness be evident to all. So you kind of get a feel of this epistle. And then right in the middle of the epistle, chapter 2, Paul brings us to the centerpiece of the Christian life. Be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. To Paul, a Christ-centered life, characterized by humility, 
is the best guard against disunity in the body of Christ. That, he says, every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, guys, a mark of our church, Gracie Van, is, would you agree with me, a sound doctrine? I mean, we've been in existence almost 11 years, and uh, we've had no major disruptions over doctrinal issues. In fact, one of our core values here that we've adopted is the core value of truth. That is, we believe that uh, God, the primary way that God establishes his rule in the lives of his people is through the, the faithful teaching and application of Scripture. We saw last week in Acts chapter 2 in our series in the book of Acts where the church at, of Acts continued, remember that, they continued faithfully in the apostles' teaching. So truth is a hallmark of this church. Now, we have what we call the fundamentals that we hold to. We will not compromise upon. If you've been a part of our new members class, we go over some of those fundamentals with you. One of our fundamentals is justification by faith alone. We believe that God is one in essence, three in persons, the doctrine of the Trinity. We teach uh, uh, the deity of Christ, that God was not only human, but he was divine. We talk about the inspiration of Scripture. Now, these are fundamentals that we will not deviate on. But there are some issues that we call non-essentials, that we, we have a free debate upon. Good men, good evangelical brothers have debated some issues for centuries, and they will continue to debate them until the Lord comes. An example is baptism. Now, you know, if you've been here very long, that we do two kinds of baptisms. Jimmy does uh, an infant baptism by pouring, and I do believer's baptism by immersions. And we've done that since day one. And we have a great unity of the Spirit on that. I'm a patient man. I believe that um, one day Jimmy will come to a fuller understanding of the New Testament. And he'll change his position. It reminds me of that uh, story I read about a Presbyterian pastor and uh, a Baptist pastor, and they were discussing their differences on baptism, and the Presbyterian pastor just couldn't quite get it. And finally he, just, he asked, well, how much water do you Baptists need? And the, the Baptist pastor, uh, he said, do you need up to your knees? And he said, oh, no, we need more than that. Well, you need up to your shoulders? No, we need more than that. Up to the chin? No, we need more than that. Over the head? He said, exactly. He said, well, that's where we put it. So he was still confused. <laughs> so the debate goes on. But we have a great unity of the spirit on these issues. One of the mottos that we've adopted here at Grace years ago when we first started is a motto of, of St. Augustine's. He said, in essentials, there must be unity. In non-essentials, there should be liberty. But in all things, there should be charity. Now, here's why I bring this issue of doctrine up, ladies and gentlemen. It's not uncommon for Christians to divide over doctrinal issues. In fact, if it's over some of the fundamentals, I say we ought to divide. We're not, we should not deviate from the fundamentals of this book. But here's the point. Sound doctrine alone cannot guarantee us protection from discord. We've already seen in the church of Philippi that they were a doctrinally sound church. We come to Philippians chapter 2. Look again in, in verse 2. I want you to look at this text one more time. Here Paul says to the Christians at Philippi, to the people of Grace Evan, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one, are united in spirit and purpose. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, this word like-minded means that we are to mind the same thing. It assumes that the same thing is the right thing. Now, here's what it means. That it means that one of the marks of spiritual unity is being united in the Spirit of God. Now, the word united, or in, in the NIV it says being one in spirit, united in spirit. That means, literally, being one soul. S-O-U-L-E-D, one soul. Now, guys, that means that in the middle of our uniquenesses, in the midst of our diversities, there is this overshadowing commonality that binds us together. Now, let me illustrate this for you. I want to show you a picture. Ashley's going to put a picture up on the screens here. Now, guys, uh, this picture was taken uh, several weeks ago at the close of our first service, worship services in this sanctuary. And it was a grand day, wasn't it? And there are two happy guys right there. I mean, after 11 years, it's time we had a sanctuary. And we just were rejoicing in the Lord. But that picture marks almost 11 years of ministry together. I have a copy of that in my office. It means really a lot to me. And I look back over the past 11 years and celebrate God's kindnesses to us and how he has protected this church from any kind of major discord. Now, if you've been here very long, have you noticed that Jimmy and Richard are different? You picked up on that, any? (laughs) We're just different. Uh, The personality experts tell me that I'm what they call melancholy phlegmatic. I don't like the word melancholy. I just don't like to be called a melancholy person, but that's what they tell me. And I, I, you know, I can do all I can to change, but you know, I always go back to this. I'm kind of con- confined to this personality. Melancholy. And phlegmatic sounds like some disease, doesn't it? <laughs> melancholy phlegmatic. Now, that is, uh, the melancholy phlegmatic person is, you know, perfection and peace at any cost. Um, always trying to calm things down. Um, really sensitive to the needs of others. Now, that can, you know, there can be a negative of that, too. But really sensitive to the needs of others. And I'm, not like, I'm like Jimmy. We both love people. We, we, uh, we like to have, you know, friends, friendships. We love to be around people. But, but I'm a little more cautious about making friends. You know, my, my friendship really usually goes a little bit deeper. Melancholy, phlegmatic. Now, if you put it on a scale, I would be right over here on this end, now, Jimmy's over here. The personality experts call him choleric sanguine. Now, this is the, the controlling guy, but fun-loving guy. Have you ever had Jimmy slap you on the back and put his arm? Ladies, have you ever had a kiss on the cheek from Jimmy? Just that fun-loving guy, strong-willed, decisive leader. That's who he is. We're different. As I look back over the past 11 years of ministry together... I am thankful that Jimmy Young is not like Richard Hall. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, I, I need a Jimmy Young in my life. I am a more balanced believer today because of Jimmy Young's influence in my life over the past 11 years. Now, if you talk about spiritual gift mix, uh, we have a, a one gift that uh, we have in common, but then we go our separate ways. We have different spiritual gifts. We put those together and we think it brings a balance to ministry. Now, guys, this is the issue before us in this text. 
In fact, Paul addresses the issue of unity uh, in a more detailed way in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. It does a great job on this issue of unity in the church. And let me just give you a summary of Paul's teaching on the issue of unity in the body. Here it is in one sentence. It's not uniformity that we're looking for. It's unity in the midst of diversity. Now, remember, we're talking about the mark of the cross in the church. Paul has this in mind as he writes to the Christians at Philippi. And now in the middle, again, in the middle of this epistle, he directs our attention to what I call the objective aspect of our unity. In verses 6 through 11, here he presents one of the finest statements on the doctrine of Christ in all the New Testament. And it's no accident. This is not an incidental. This is not, oh, by the way, in case you forget about Christ. Right here with purpose, Paul directs our attention to the very centerpiece of the Christian faith, to the unifying factor, the objective aspect of this unity in the body of Christ. Why? Why? Because our belief in Christ and the cross become the unifying factor in the church. Paul understood that the community of, the, of Christ is a community of the cross. And here, ladies and gentlemen, this means that if you and I are in Christ, when we sin against each other, we sin against Christ. Now, we can extend this application beyond the church. We can extend it into the families, into the family unit, because... The families are the basic building blocks of the church. Now, uh, I direct this to the husbands. Guys, has the cross made a difference in your personal lives? Has the cross made a difference, husbands and fathers, in the way you treat your families? I can't think of a better application of this than what Paul shows us in the book of Ephesians again, where Paul tells the husbands, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Now, in the biological family, guys, we are still brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters spiritually with our wives and our children. We're united in Christ. And to sin against each other is to sin against Christ. Now, if I can pick on the the men just a little bit more, and I do this cautiously, fathers, uh, in the issue of parenting, you can make numerous applications here. Uh, and I say this cautiously because I am a parent. I'm not a perfect parent. I'm st- I'm, the jury's still out on a couple of mine. Um, I heard about this uh, pastor who, young guy who graduated from seminary, just fresh out of seminary, no wife, no kids, takes his first church. And he, uh, th- that first fall in his brand new church, he teaches a four-week series on rules for raising kids. A couple of years later, after having a wife and some children now, he decides it's time to preach the series again, so he... He, um, he, but he changed his sermon title from Rules to Raising Kids to Suggestions for Raising Kids. <laughs> and then years later, when they become teenagers, he stops preaching on it altogether. And that's how I feel. I'm very cautious when I talk about parenting issues. Uh, I am a parent. I am a father. But guys, here's what I see. I'm seeing this more and more in our lives. In fact, if you go back to that, that, um, that continuum I illustrated earlier... You know, guys, there is a tendency for some of us to be, in, in the parenting issues, to be very aggressive, almost too aggressive the way we parent. And then, if you're over here and you're like me, melancholy, phlegmatic, there is a tendency to become too passive in parenting. I suggest to you that we need to be somewhere in the middle 
And guys, we need to be, uh, gentlemen, assertive in the way that we parent. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Very clearly uh, in Deuteronomy, the, the text tells us the responsibilities of fathers to teach and educate the children. But I'm seeing this more and more, even in this church. I'm seeing fathers who are too passive. Good men, gentle men. They love their families, but they're very passive when it comes to things, issues of spiritual leadership. We must be assertive, gentlemen, as we lead our families. And we can make other applications. Uh, this week, I ministered to a lady who is in her mid-50s. Not a member of this church. In her mid-50s. And her life is literally torn apart because of an argument between a younger sister. They've been uh, broken apart because of this, a, a spirit of disunity. And it's literally tearing her apart. We can make this application here, guys. The common ground that unites us all together as a body is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, guys, last summer or last year, I think one of the most popular books in, that was uh, read in the, by the people of Grace of Anne was John Fisher's book, On a Hill Too Far Away. Some of you have read this book. Uh, I checked earlier this week. There's plenty of these uh, in the bookstore. If you haven't read Fisher's book, On a Hill Too Far Away, you need to get it and read it. Very good reading. But here's, in essence, this is the, what John Fisher writes about in this book. John Fisher was raised in a church out on the East Coast. And uh, what was unique about this church was right in the middle of the sanctuary, somewhere down front, as best I can recall, there was a huge cross anchored in the floor. It wasn't like the cross behind me put up here on the wall out of the way. This cross was anchored right in, down front in the middle of the sanctuary. And John Fisher says it was just in a... In, in the wrong place, you come into the sanctuary and if you sit in the wrong seat, you'd have to look over the thing to see the speaker. Or sometimes if you weren't careful, you could actually stumble into the cross. It was always in the way. John Fisher says after a few years, it began to make an impression upon his life. Isn't that the way the cross should be? The cross is always before us. The message and mandate of the cross is ever before us, ladies and gentlemen. We can't get away from us from it. And it calls us to sacrificial living. I'm quoting John Fisher now in his book. He says, if it took the cross to save us, it's going to take nothing short of that same hard, splintery cross to get us to our goal. Simply put, the cross does for us what it did for Christ. It kills us. The cross kills us. Now, if it took, if the cross should mark our relationships in the church... Secondly, how much more should the cross mark our relationships in the world? Hey, I want you to turn over just a couple of pages to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Just over two pages, maybe. I want to show you a text here that I ran, I came across recently in my Bible readings. Philippians, or Colossians 1.24. Now, this is one of those verses. You ever read verses over and over again in your readings, and you come back to a verse the next time, And you look at a phrase and you say, well, how did I miss that? I've read this thing a hundred times. What does this mean? Well, this is what happened to me recently. I was reading Colossians 1, verse 24. Paul again, he says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. Now, we know what that means. Again, this is one of the prison epistles. Paul is in chains and his chains have advanced the kingdom, the message of the gospel. So we understand that. But he goes on to say, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. And that's the part I couldn't get. 
What is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction? Nothing's lacking in, Christ, in regards to Christ's affliction. I mean, Christ's death on the cross was perfect in every way. It, 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 it accomplished what it was meant to accomplish. I began to meditate on this text, and I realized that what is lacking has nothing to do with Christ's work on the cross. That wasn't deficient in any way. What is lacking, what Paul means here, what is lacking is that Christ's affliction is not known and trusted in all the world. That these afflictions, that is, the message of the splintery cross, is still hidden to many people. The gift, the gift in itself lacked nothing except one thing. It often lacks a personal presentation of Christ to the nations of the world. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that was the call of the church at Philippi. And that's the call of the people of Grace of Ann, To take the gospel, the message of the cross, into the world. Beginning in our homes, in our communities, in the workplace. I read a story recently of the English author Rita Snowden. Rita said she had made a trip down to the, uh, the city of Dover, England, and there in the afternoon, late afternoon, she was sitting out in one of those sidewalk cafes drinking tea. And Rita Snowden said, all of a sudden, this most pleasant aroma just filled the air. She said it was as if flowers were blooming all around her. And she called the, the waitress over and asked the waitress where the smell was coming from. And the waitress explained to her that right in the center of town was a perfume factory. And almost all of the townspeople worked in this perfume factory. And then she said at the, at the close of the workday, about 4.30 every afternoon, when the factories would close its doors, all the employees would flood out of the gates and go into the city streets and carry with them the pleasing aroma of the day's work. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, as we leave the church doors today and we go into our homes and we go into our neighborhoods, we get in the car tomorrow and we drive to the city to do our work and we go to school or at play, May the pleasing aroma of grace saturate us so much so that the people around us in just the common events of the day will recognize there's something different about us. I tried to think of a Home Depot illustration here for you guys. And I couldn't for the life of me come up with one just short of making one up. So I decided that wasn't the right thing to do. So here's the best I can do. One afternoon or one evening, on my way home from Home Depot, I'm joking. No, this really did happen, not the Home Depot part, but one evening, this was several years ago when our children were still old enough and they weren't embarrassed to go out to dinner with mom and dad. And one evening we went out to dinner together, the four of us. We sat down at this table and the waitress came to take our order and I don't know what was wrong with me. I don't recall the details, but I was apparently in a bad mood and a bad disposition and I was a little bit rude to the waitress. So she took our order and she left to turn it in. And just as soon as she left, my daughter, Holly, tugged on my shirt sleeve and said, Dad, you weren't very polite to her, were you? And uh, conviction just hit me. I knew she was right. I called the waitress back over and said, young lady, my daughter just pointed out to you that I was rude and impolite. And I think she's right. I want to apologize to you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm convinced that the first real communication that a lot of people will hear concerning spiritual things will come from people like you and me 
in the common events of everyday life. Like being kind to a waitress. Like taking the second seat in the office place. Like taking the smaller office when it comes to issues in the, in the marketplace. Being kind and compassionate. The text t- tells us that the love of Christ was a humble love. And it was a courteous love. One more story. I read this recently about uh, an old alcoholic who was, as many said, destined to a life of alcoholism until Jesus Christ entered into his, li- into his life. His name was Joe. And Joe hung around the old Bowery Mission in one of our major cities. And people said after Joe's conversion, a complete change took place in his life. And Joe took opportunity to help everybody around the, the mission in any way that he could. Nothing was too demeaning for Joe. He could be found at night cleaning up the, uh, the vomit of alcoholics who had stumbled into the center, dressing men and putting sick men to bed. He would go to the restrooms and clean up after men were careless and left a mess. Nothing was too demeaning for Joe. became one of the most compassionate, kind, helpful men the mission would ever know. One night after the evening meal, the director of the mission stood up and gave an evangelistic message. At the close of that message, he went down front, and an old drunk came from the back, fell on his face in front of the director of the mission, and he began to cry out, Oh, God, make me like Joe. Oh, God, make me like Joe. Oh, God, make me like Joe. The director of the mission came down and put his arm around the gentleman. He said, Sir, I think you should be praying, God, make me like Jesus. The gentleman looked up at the director with this quizzical expression on his face and said, Sir, is Jesus like Joe? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a mandate to go into the world and bring the gospel. We are to be Jesus Christ to the world. We take the message of the cross into the world and people see grace in us. One more thing as we close. Look in uh, verses 11. One more time, chapter 2, verse 11. I want to show you one one other thing. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The close of this great uh, chapter, Paul brings us to one of the most significant portions of Scripture in the Bible. The great apostle directs our attention to this eternal figure of the universe, the center of all life, when he says, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, this great figure so so brilliantly portrayed in the gospel accounts, but Paul didn't stop there. He said, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one who makes atonement once for all, opening the way of salvation. Paul didn't stop there. He says, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a brilliant move on Paul's part. Guys, you remember how the Jews interpreted the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain? The Jew of the Old Testament would not even mention the name God. And one of the names that they used to substitute for the name God, for Jehovah, was the name Lord. And when a Jew said the name Lord, he really meant God. And when Paul says that the Christ, uh, Christ confession means that Christ is Lord, he is saying that Christ, Jesus the Christ is one with the Father. He is supreme. He is God. 
And I submit to you that that may be the settle the whole issue for us this morning. Everything comes down to that one issue. Jesus Christ is the Lord. We're coming toward the Easter season. That's our season. It's the Christian church. Next Sunday will be Palm Sunday. We'll celebrate the entry of our Lord into the city of Jerusalem. On Thursday night will be Monday Thursday service. The night of the Last Supper, the Passover meal. We'll celebrate communion here. And then we'll gather again on Easter Sunday and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, it's, it's important in these days in which we live that we understand that Christianity declares a unique message. There is only one way to the Father. And that is through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Our Father, we thank you this morning for truth. We thank you that it has taught us that the unifying factor in the body of Christ is the cross of Christ. That the message of the cross, the message of Christ, is the message of the cross. We humble ourselves before that cross today, committing ourselves in humility. And we're saying to you this morning as a prayer, make us like Jesus Christ. And may the sweet aroma of grace follow us out these doors as we go out into our homes and into the communities. And may people see Jesus Christ in us. For truly, Christ is the only way to the Father. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.